All right, everyone. Thank you very much. Um, we're happy to have you back, and we'll be welcoming Trevor back here in a minute. Is supply management in agriculture a hindrance at trade discussions? That'll be next week's talk by Dr. Danny Leroy. And just to remind you, today's talk is about the guaranteed annual income with Dr. Trevor Harrison. And to start this off, I was handed a written question. So, Trevor, here's the question. Is there anywhere where they continued the GAI or where all the experiments discontinued? Well, I stand to be corrected on this, but as far as I know, uh, thus far they are, uh, these are all just experiments. One of the things that uh, in all these experiments they uh, do is they, they test at different levels. So for example, uh, some people uh, would get uh, just a flat amount, the demigrant again, uh, but others might be taxed back at say 25% or 50% or whatever. So, and, and the reason for testing it, this is typical kind of university academics doing their experiment thing, mm -hmm. but they were wanting to see is there a certain level at which people would, again, the disincentive would they stop working. And uh, as I said, they never did find in any of these experiments that there was actually a drop Although, again, the amount of money given people is at such a low level. I mean, you can well imagine if someone here wins a 649, probably the next day you go and say to your boss, I think I'm going to quit work now. But, you know, that's not the levels we're talking at. So the, uh, the experiments have only been kind of teasing out many of those things. Uh, but as far as I know, uh, no one has actually gone ahead with actually implementing on a regular basis for an entire population uh, these kinds of things. There are other kinds of programs, of course, which are universal, and you could say there's a kind of a comparable kind of thing there. Hello, my name is Peter Beal, and uh, Finland just ended their test program, and the economist, uh, they said it was too expensive, the economist uh, extrapolated to, for England and said that it, it would replace like pensions and, and unemployment insurance and things like that and welfare. And it says it would cost an extra $300 billion above what it is now, mm -hmm. what, what the cost of all those other programs are. And so could you comment a little bit about that? Like the, the economist recommends not to even bother, so. Yeah, actually, that sounds uh, pretty much uh, commensurate then with what the uh, budget officer in Ottawa said, that the program would actually be very expensive. And again, a lot of people who have supported it, uh, particularly people like Milton Friedman and others, have said, well, this is a great way to eliminate other programs, but in order to make it actually work properly, you would have to top up even that. But there's another problem on the other hand is that... Um, uh, getting rid of some of these programs which do offer a certain kind of um, targeted protection to certain groups of people out there. Uh, at the end of the day, a lot of people looking at it say, okay, it's too expensive to start with, but in the long run also the amount of money that's going to be given is going to be ratcheted down constantly, so people will end up being worse off than they were before. So, but, but that's part of the debate is how much does it actually cost? 
And I think you're, you're absolutely right. What you're citing here from Finland and extrapolating to England is that for a lot of people, the idea of implementing it, it's just too expensive to imagine doing it. Trevor, uh, it's so wonderful to have you here. Terry Shellington is my name. Um, I, I just want to quibble with your uh, alternative to uh, guaranteed annual income. Mm -hmm. Given the massive uh, loss of jobs that people are projecting, <clears throat> reducing uh, work week to 30 or 25 hours strikes me as just whistling in the wind. Mm. But I think there is an assumption in all of this that tests the political will of all of us, and I'd like you to comment, and that is we can't afford it because we're assuming the same levels of the same disparity between rich and poor. Um, unless we want widespread social unrest, don't you think we need to start talking about <clears throat> about uh, about uh, much more generous income support and obviously less less um, disparity between rich and poor? And then we'll have a happier culture, not necessarily richer, but happier. I wonder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, the, actually, there are places, I mean, there's a lot of experiments going on. There are places in Europe that are also experimenting with lowering the hours of, of work. Part of the problem I see in terms of uh, simply uh, providing uh, higher social benefits is this still actually makes people pretty dependent upon the state and for political forces to actually uh, make sure that the income is kept up there. Uh, people do need work at least most people still need to work as a kind of a social psychological thing, right? It's part of your sense of identity. So we need to think, uh, how do we still provide people with work? I'm not talking about here, by the way, of reducing the hours of work to 25 and then your wages in a commensurate fashion. The wages actually have to stay up because otherwise you're sucking demand out of the system and people can't buy anything anyway. Uh, in, the, in the wider uh, sense, what we need to do is redistribute income and particularly the profits made from absolutely useless financial investments around the world, people who are you know, becoming wealthy for producing nothing, uh, that money needs to be redistributed. And that's where you find the money to actually pay people at a higher wage. But by reducing the hours of work, you bring more people and particularly young people into the workforce so they actually have some kind of meaningful thing that they're actually doing with their time. And once we actually achieve that, then the other part of it, as I said before, is I think we need to reconceptualize what do we mean by work? What is work? Is work going out there and toiling and breaking your back and sweating all day, or is work something that is more creative that is going on in your, in your head, in your social relations and everything else? That's a much bigger discussion. But immediately, in terms of the high, high unemployment rates that we already see in some countries, especially among the young, uh, and the educated young at that, and the projections of what automation is going to do, that's why we need to think about income and work hours redistribution. Yeah. Avatarnas, <clears throat> thank you for your presentation. It's quite, very complicated, but then when, when you come to the end and say, well, the economists, they talk about the cost of the project. Is anybody concerned with the living conditions of the people that would benefit from this program? I mean, if you're only talking about the cost, what's the other side? In Alberta, we don't have the right, the first right to arbitration with federal government. We do have that. Why can't we have it in Alberta as well? 
This is just an additional question. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and Ontario is experimenting at a provincial level, so for sure you, there's no reason to have to have the federal government involved, but there are costs involved in this. Um, I, I don't think I'm going too far out on the limb to suggest that the, uh, the NDP government probably right now, if they th thought they were going to implement it, uh, I don't think they'd get a lot of support. <laughs> So, so that's a, politically, it's a bit of a dead end. Um, there is, there's all, there's absolutely a case that needs to be made for people who are, again, outside of the workforce, people who are poor, people who have all kinds of conditions that they can't be working. Uh, this, these guaranteed annual income programs. Um, only barely touch on some of that in, a, in any case. But yeah, we need to rethink about how we're actually going to get more money so that people can live uh, properly with respect in the community and be uh, productive members of that community. So, you know, there's a lot of social policy issues that we need to actually think through here uh, in the next few years. So I had a question about, um, oh sorry, my name's Chase Bogart and um, I'm in the technology industry. I see what's going on with automation. <coughs> if the 19th and 20th century were called the industrial revolution, I kind of see this as being the automation revolution. My question is, have you ever looked into an idea of a universal basic asset? Something that um, would be based around uh, we used to have the utilities regulated by the government, for example, and when we saw those go away, the prices went up for utility costs and different things all, all around. Our recycling centers would be something that taxpayers are currently paying for, and if we could see some sort of programs around different assets that the government taxpayers pay for that have some money going back to, say, the, pro the actual business itself, as well as a basic asset dividend for the population based on the, what's earned from those assets. Have you ever seen that or heard of that or considered that? Quick answer, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> and what you just hit me with right now, I can't even begin to give you a proper answer to that because I'd need to sit down and think through what you've actually just presented we, us with. My yeah. fiance and I are very interested in this and we'd love to be able to talk with you further sure. down the road. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you. My name is Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks for coming to SACPA today again, Trevor. You been a big supporter over the years. Uh, speaking about job losses and the like automation to as an excuse to bring in uh, guaranteed annual income, uh, it could actually make the problem much worse because there's thousands upon thousands of people working for the government deciding on who gets what. Mm -hmm. And they would, their jobs would be gone, mm -hmm. by and large. Have you thought about that? Yeah, actually, uh, certainly one of the uh, incentives for, again, Milton Friedman, various people on the, on the right, like said that one of the arguments is that uh, it's bureaucratically efficient. So, I mean, instead of several programs, you have one program and you have far fewer bureaucrats, right? So, I mean, there would be lots of people who would lose their jobs there. Uh, but this is like, because of automation, this is going to happen in a whole bunch of areas as well. Anything that can be standardized and done over and over and over and over again, 
that's what's going to be automated, right? I mean, it's just that's what machines do really well. 24-7, 365, the machines keep working. They're tireless. Uh, so, um, yeah, that, that's one of the reasons for uh, certainly the ideas of uh, this efficiency argument. Curiously, in the United States, of course, uh, the efficiency argument doesn't seem to work to uh, get rid of uh, private health care because one of the biggest costs of American health care is the fact you've got an awful lot of people administering it because it's not a single system, right? But anyway, another issue. <laughs> uh, Ken Sears, um, first off, just by way of full disclosure, I actually am the recipient of what could be considered a guaranteed annual income in that I am now old enough that I'm getting a pension. And I can tell you I have no incentive to go back to work whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do feel that I am a relatively productive member of this society, and probably more so than I was when I was actually working. Mm -hmm. um, however, the question I do have is, you've repeatedly said, okay, the money's not going to be enough, it's just going to be sort of almost a derisory amount, it will never, it will never amount to enough to keep people off of the, uh, or, or keep the pressures off of people to go back into the workforce. And I'm just curious because on a $15 an hour minimum wage, roughly 2,000 hours a year on a 40 hour work week, that's about $20,000. Um, if you use that as a baseline, or perhaps if you use the maximum for a single age recipient in this province, which is about 1,460, I think it is, a month. That's about $17,000 a year. Mm -hmm. 1580 thank you. Mm. Where would, from, your, from what you've looked at the field, where are the, uh, what, what sort of money are we talking about here? Where does it compare to those sorts of, uh, those sorts of standards, those sorts of baselines? Yeah, the uh, was the the budget officer said it would cost something like seventy eight billion, I think, to run it right across the country, and that but that's still at a fairly low, you know, your basic kind of uh, 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 was the the poverty line sort of level, right? So they, we're not talking a huge amount of money per person. But we are talking when you think of it collectively, because you're talking about 35 million people, right? So it's, it's right across the board. Then you might tax some of it back using the, that particular program there. But the other problem is here with all of these programs, somebody has to decide what those levels are going to be. And we know minimum wage is a good example here, where the minimum wage rate in this province and in other places dropped so precipitously that after a time, in terms of relative basis of people at the bottom versus people in higher income areas, they, are, uh, they fall farther and farther behind, right? So they can't purchase anything anyway, and it really is like a bare amount to survive on. And that's, that's the way actually bureaucrats will, and economists quite often will look at it. The there is no incentive, and this goes back to the poor law days, they do not want to have people feeling that they can exit from the marketplace and do probably very, very creative things as you're talking about. I mean, being a good community person, going around, you know, engaging with your family, doing all kinds of stuff that is not viewed as productive wages. They don't want people to be able to exit the marketplace 
to be truly free from the marketplace, they want you to be cash-strapped so that you barely can survive, and if you want any more, now you have to go out and take some kind of job out there. And that's the way these programs have always been designed going back 200 years. Okay, thank you. And just one last comment. And I yeah. Um, I am so pleased to hear somebody else talking about re-examining the 40-hour work week. I've been talking about that in the labor movement for I don't know how long, and I absolutely agree with you. Thank you. Please keep your comments brief and your questions to the speaker clear. Um, it's clear to me that we only have men at the lineup, and in terms of gender, gender parity, I'd like to see some women coming up and asking questions. Um, my name is Don Ryan, and um, I have two very quick questions to ask you. Um, there is always a talk about what the costs are going to be, and I'm curious about your comments about the possibility of raising income from, say, things like the Robin Hood tax or a maximum income, mm -hmm. rather than always talking about the minimum? That's, a, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I'm actually, again, great question. I thought, I, I'm in favor of it. Uh, I do think that actually the, uh, one of the things that's really clear is over time, um, People, uh, CEOs of various uh, corporations, universities, uh, that the, the wages have got way, way out of whack here in terms of the ratio. It used to be, I think back in about 1975 in the States, the average CEO salary was about 41 times that of a frontline worker. And now it's up in the range of, I think, 430 to 1. Uh, and the thing is, they play off against each other. Th this is not just simply an incentive to, uh, you know, so someone does a good job, although actually, strangely enough, people don't necessarily do that much better job when you give them billions more. They just do the same job for billions more. But, but there's, a, there's a bigger problem here, and that is this is money, basically, that is being sucked out of the economy that is not being used to any real purpose. One of the big problems we have right now is there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines because it's looking for a safe place to invest where it can get 8 10%, but there's no places like that anymore, so it just sits there. It's just dead capital. Um, so that's why I'm saying about redistributing all of this, and uh, people who work hard, yeah, you should be compensated in... in proper ways, but we don't need the kind of ratios that we've seen grow over the last 35 years. It's, it's totally out of whack, and it's, it's immoral, it's unethical, and it's even economically, it's unsound. Um, so, yeah, a, a maximum salary, sure, I'm all for it. My name is Jester Osain, and uh, thank you for the... Closer. Yeah. Okay. Close, close, right. right up. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, um, thank you for your presentation. And uh, I grew up in the uh, time of the Great Depression. 
And I also remember William Eberhard. He, um, in fact, I got his, <clears throat> probably the only uh, uh, issue of um, his prosperity certificates that, uh, I don't know if they lasted more than a month, but I know uh, I was in a shoe store, I think it was a shoe store, my mother got a dollar back in change and it was a prosperity certificate and she gave it to me and I haven't heard anybody mention anything about uh, Eberhardt and his idea was that you got this prosperity certificate and on the back of it had it had places for uh, two years of one cent stamps and you and every week if you didn't spend that, you had to put this one cent on. Well, anyhow, my, my question is, uh, I, I guess it was killed by the federal government and, and, and Eberhardt used to say the Bay Street bankers. But I'm uh, wondering is how come everybody needed, that was a, a great idea, he would have given, I think it was $25 a month for every adult, which was really big money at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, how come that they couldn't do that, but they had unlimited money for a war? That, mm -hmm. that, and, and people started to produce things and buy things, and then there was prosperity. But there couldn't be any prosperity for the little guy um, back in, I think my prosperity certificate was uh, start. It was August the the ninth or seventh or sixth, I think, nineteen thirty six, and it ended in it would be filled up and spent uh, uh, for about a hundred and four times, I think, or something like that. For uh, in 1938, August the 17th. Anyhow, my question is, again, how come we could get all the money for the for the war, but there wasn't any money for anything else? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, uh, two two comments on that. Thank you. That was uh, really interesting. Um, the of course, uh, Eberhardt's uh, move was actually. Uh, ruled to be uh, unconstitutional because the federal government has control over finances over monetary supply. Uh, but the interesting thing is actually the idea of social credit, uh, that idea uh, of finding a way to get money into people's hands was actually going around quite widely at the time. And the whole idea of Keynesian economics is basically how to get money into people's hands when you have a depression because you need people to spend, you need people to be taken care of. So there was a lot of ideas very similar to that. Uh, and to your point about the, uh, the you know, Second World War, um, it's true. Why the Second World War basically brought us out of depression. How do we do that? Well, it's because the government actually spent a lot of money. And they spent a lot of money getting people to retool, to build all kinds of, uh, you know, war machines and everything. Um, and, uh, but I would say even today, you know, uh, we should spend money again to win the peace. One of the, I mentioned before that in the 1960s and into the 70s, there was still a pretty profound belief that 
government could actually do things. And, and I still believe government actually can do things. We just need to do it right. And we need to have the will to actually do things. Uh, but part of the reason for that was precisely that argument. People said after 1945, we won the war, how come we can't win the peace, right? Because no one wanted to go back to the dirty 30s again. And so we did invest in programs, education, we began to rethink about how we deliver healthcare. So, I mean, there was that kind of uh, popular will to make government not an alien force, but something that reflects our interests that we actually uh, describe what we want as a society. So, thank you for that question. Uh, Maureen Hawkins. Uh, what I was wondering, you're talking about how many jobs are going to be automated out, et cetera, et cetera. What about going back to some of the kinds of programs they had, like the Civilian Conservation Corps? I mean, our infrastructure needs work. There are a lot of things that need to be done to improve our very physical climate. Mm -hmm. um, and we could also be training people to do those. Why not tax the upper echelons more and use federal and provincial money to improve our environment and provide jobs? Why not indeed? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I do think automation, as I said, is going to replace an awful lot of jobs, but there are possibilities for other jobs out there. One of them certainly is uh, environmental reconstruction. There's a lot of damage. We just have to think about orphan wells in this province. Uh, it's not, uh, computers are going to be able to deal with that thing. These are going to have to be really skilled people going out there and doing it. So yes, that's, I think in some of these kind of, high-end service jobs, uh, that that's where there could be jobs. So uh, teachers, nurses, environmental recla reclamation peoples, um, these are the jobs of the future. And if we end up getting rid of some really bad back-breaking jobs that are really low-paying and demeaning, fine. I am not a Luddite saying let's keep every bad job out there. Let's just simply use the profits that are made out of that to reinvest in people to create the society that we want. Thanks, Trevor, for your talk today. Mary Shillington. Before Bob Campbell had to leave, we had a little discussion about what a difference it makes when people have homes. Uh, the, so the, Bob, as many of you would know, has worked hard on homelessness in, in Lethbridge. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, we don't take into account uh, uh, the studies that have been done that show lower cost of, uh, for the police, for the health care, mm -hmm. the ambulances, all those sort of things. So as, and, and so many of the, some of the people certainly have uh, fetal alcohol effect. Uh, but as a sociologist, you've talked about what we, there's so many things we could be doing. Can you give us a few more examples, please? Yeah, uh, housing, certainly. That's, uh, again, it's hard to imagine uh, automation actually uh, knocking out people who are building houses. Um, there is some really exciting stuff around just the technologies around building, that we can build houses better, and, and this will go against actually a lot of the way our economy operates, but houses that actually last for a period of time. <laughs> Because we've kind of got wedded into a cycle of, you know, uh, you know, things having to be replaced every 25 years or something. 
except for a car that I have, which is now 23 years old. I'm going against the grain. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great example. And your, your point about uh, uh, people needing a house, they need a place to stay in. Uh, now, we know that many people in the workforce are also mobile, so that's, that's fine too, but most people need a sense of place, and they need a place to stay. And one of the worst things for people who are homeless is, of course, if you already have social, psychological, mental health issues, the last place you should be is on the street because those conditions are only going to get worse. So, yeah, we, that's, that's another area that for sure we need to invest in. So I'm Melissa Reed. I see the, the state of work right now. I have been in precarious jobs for about the last five years. I was laid off. Right now I'm on a mat leave position. I don't really have a job past October. Mm -hmm. And we've got things that we're trying to figure out with that. But as it stands, I'm going to be out of work again. I've worked contract after contract. Jobs just, you don't get a job and stay there forever. Mm -hmm. It's just not the reality of the way things are. Mm -hmm. And we need to look at what we want life to be. Do we mm -hmm. want to have to be slaves to labor? Mm -hmm. Do we want to have to work so that we can eat? Or do we want to be able to have everybody devote themselves to what they view as important and help contribute and grow the society as a whole? Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you don't necessarily believe that UBI might be the way to go. Uh, you're still evaluating. You had mentioned you had a few other ideas. Could you elaborate that, on that a bit more as to what you think, if UBI is not the way to go, what you think might be the way to go? Yeah, like I said, the, uh, I think there's some real dangers in those programs. We're imagining that a single program is going to deal with these issues, and I think it, it's potentially a real trap for people in the workforce. It's just another government program which will keep people in, in fairly low and precarious jobs sometimes. So uh, we do know that we have a dynamic economy where people are going to be moving around. So we need to train people so they can actually do those transitions, but we need the programs around that will assist them when they have to do those transitions, right? So that you don't lose benefits as you move. That's the nice thing about a universal healthcare system, although it actually should be much more enhanced than it is. There's things that in European countries they imagine are part of a uh, healthcare system that we don't have here, such as dental care, care eye care, a whole series of other things. Um, but the other thing is, is I think we just simply need a, a serious rethinking of, one, what do we mean by work? You know, how is it that we justify getting money into people's hands? Well, my justification is, you are a citizen. You are a member of the community. You deserve something. But we need to reconceptualize what is it that we're doing out there? What is work? And from there, if we're going to recompense people in terms of money, again, we need to... to you know, and we can do this through uh, legislation. We can let, we got away from 44 hour weeks to now 37 and a half is probably fairly standard, although 40 still exists. Um, we got away from the 10 hour work day. Uh, we legislate a lot of these things, right? So let's make it fair for everybody. We start to move towards 32, 30, 25 hour work weeks. Make sure that the income still stay up there so the people now are freed up, truly freed up from the labor market to do the other things in the community in terms of their family, their friendships, uh, finding themselves in ways that we have lost ourselves to the world of work. This is the kind of world in the 21st century we should be thinking about. And we can do it, but we actually need to actually use that kind of legislative power to do it. 
Please join with me in thanking Trevor. Don't run away.